0: And we'll start out with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can share to open your word. And we just pray now, Lord, that uh, you would apply it to our hearts. You would take the words that come from me, Lord, and erase it from our minds. But the word of God, we would ask that you would impress it upon your servants, Lord, upon your people. Help us to grow more like Christ, Help us to understand more deeply uh, the depths of your word as your Holy Spirit works within our midst. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Today we're going to look at a very familiar psalm to the, in the Old Testament to the Jews. And we find it um, actually quoted by Satan to Christ, a portion of this psalm in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4 and also in Matthew chapter 4. Only he doesn't quote it, he misquotes it. And it's the only verses that Satan ever quotes in the, uh, in the scriptures according to Boyce and his commentary on this. And in this section we want to see Christ in the Old Testament and applications of Christ found in Psalm 91, which we read earlier here. And I started out here while hunting last year out in Missouri. I was archery hunting with a friend of mine, and uh, we were in a restaurant, and I saw this psalm on the wall of the restaurant. And it was entitled A Soldier's Psalm. It's a beautiful psalm the Lord has given to those of us who have been referred to as close dwellers. And as I meditated on that psalm and read it often uh, since that time, uh, when pastor about three weeks ago asked me if I would... Uh, priest while he was away I thought it would be a good psalm to really study and I began studying some of the commentaries on it and, uh, and so we have this message and if I was entitling it I would say it was the five promises that God's word gives to the close dwellers to those that dwell close to the Lord and I start out here with an illusion is defined as the state or fact of being intellectually deceived or misled in today's world most of us live in a state of security that really is an illusion. And we see that where we think it's safe in the movie theater, but not always. Or we think it's safe at the Boston Marathon. And I had written this before the Boston Marathon. I guess I could have included this and going back in and changed the wording and the uh, opening thoughts. We think it's safe in the elementary schools or in the World Trade Center. And we find it really is not. Hospitals sometimes make mistakes with the medicine they give the patient, or even which patient is in which operating room. You find out one got their gallbladder out and they were supposed to get their tonsils out or something. And so the question arises, where can I find true safety? Where is there real peace? What do we think will give us security? Well, today we think it's maybe money, or our health, or our possessions, our job, our friends, our pension plan. But Psalm 91 really reminds us of something that we already know. The only place of real safety is found in the Lord. And though we may all know that, we need to be reminded of it from time to time. It's a psalm that's probably written by David. It might have been written by Moses. One thing we know for sure, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And it's in his written word, and we know it is absolute truth. So as as we examine Psalm 91... We want to look at these five promises that God's word gives to the close dwellers. And the first one I have here is they shall be given special care or protection from heaven. We see that in verses 1 and 2 and also in 4 and 9. To dwell, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, to rest, points to the abiding place of the Most High. It is his stronghold. It is where he is. We need to draw nigh unto him. And, you, and it makes me think of John chapter 1, where the two disciples that were with John the Baptist when he was uh, proclaiming that the Messiah had come, uh, the second day, there in John chapter 1, it says he pointed out Christ and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And they left John the Baptist, these two disciples, and they followed Jesus. And he turned around and he said to them, uh, "Where are you, What do you want? And they said, Where are you staying? And he said, Come and see. And they followed him and they stayed with him all day. They wanted to be with the Lord. And that's the idea of Psalm 91, to be in the close fellowship of the Lord, to be in his stronghold, his tabernacle, his temple where you are safe from all enemies and foes. The shelter or secret place of the Most High makes me think of Nathaniel in John chapter 1. And remember, he was under the fig tree all by himself, just him and God. And most likely, if you think of the setting for Nathanael, John the Baptist was proclaiming that the Messiah was coming to prepare your hearts for the coming of Messiah. And Nathanael, who is proclaimed by the Lord as an Israelite in whom there is no guile, would be a godly man, a true man. And so there he was, Certainly, all Israel had gone out to see John the Baptist and had heard his words. And so, probably, Nathanael, while he was alone by himself, just him and God under the fig tree, was probably meditating on who is the Messiah? Show him to me, Lord. And now, here comes Philip. Philip has seen the Lord, and he's the first thing in his mind I got to go tell Nathanael. And so, he comes and he says, We found him, the Messiah. And Philip says, who is he? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And that was confusing to Nathaniel. and, And also, it seemed contradictory to everything that he had as an Israelite in whom there was no guile studied. Because the Old Testament doesn't talk about Nazareth. And so he says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It doesn't equate. But he follows him and he comes with him. And now he sees the Lord, and the Lord says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. And he says, How do you know me? And then Jesus says to him, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, before Philip called you. When you were alone in that secret place, that abiding place of the Lord, just you and God, I already saw you. And now I'm answering your prayer the prayer, Where, who is the Messiah? And immediately he does a 180. Remember what happens next for Nathanael? He says, thou art the king of Israel. He says, you are the son of God. He goes from from being a doubter. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He doesn't even care anymore. He knows this is the one who he's been communing with when he was alone under the fig tree. And in time he would learn that yes he was from originally from Bethlehem and that fits the scriptures he went to Egypt and then he came to Nazareth and that's how it all works out but the Lord says you believe because I told you I saw you when you run under the fig tree you will see much greater things many greater things in this for you will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man and so we see this abiding place the secret place of the Lord that we need to be in now consider the fortress of a strong king it says here I will say of the Lord he is my refuge and my fortress well a fortress is a place that once inside the gate behind the wall one would be safe the word fortress in the Hebrew is Masada and it means strong protection when I had the privilege with my family many years ago 25 years ago whatever to go to Israel we went up to Masada And Masada uh, was this fortress of the Jews that was up on a high, high uh, plateau. It was a steep, long climb to get up to Masada, this fortress, this protected place. And it had high walls of stone all the way around it. And when Rome flattened the temple in 72 AD, it took them a full year to conquer Masada. But they ultimately did conquer Masada. They had to build a long, long um, uh, ramp, a siege ramp, to get up to Masada and get over the wall. And it is said that the 900 and, was it, 60 Jewish zealots, they, they fought them off for a whole year. But when they finally broke into Masada, they found all of them had committed suicide because they did not want to be taken um, by the Rome, by the Roman Empire. And that was how they ended that after having fought off them. Well, the Lord is our strong tower, our fortress, if we are close dwellers. And he is more impossible to penetrate than even this this Masada of the Old Testament, this place where the Jews fought off the Roman Empire. So notice from verse 9, the reason that he is greater than any fortress that a king might have is The shelter of the most high is himself it says there in verse 9 if you make the most high your dwelling even the Lord who is my refuge so he is the the temp the the actual fortress and we can rest and be confident in him now, the Most High demonstrates his superiority over all creation. In Genesis 14.19, and that's a typo there, it's 14.19, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, El- Elion, who, who delivered your enemies into your hand. So he calls the Most High... The creator of heaven and earth. And so we are to rest in his shadow. There are four names for God here shown in the verse, the first two verses here. He is called Most High, and we say that means He is greatest of all, He is greater than all the creation. He is called El- Almighty, which is El Shaddai, the um, all sufficient one. He is called the Lord, Yahweh, which is the I am and he is called God, Elohim. And so we see these names of God, the power of God that is in his name. Now, how do we rest in his shadow? How are we covered with his feathers, except that you must be close? You must walk close to a companion if you are walking in their shadow. You can't be far away from them, or you'll be out of their shadow. And the idea is to be a very close. It's interesting, this comment that the psalmist makes, he it says that um we are to be under his wings, and there you will find refuge, will find protection. And Calvin speaking on this points out the fact that God to be compared with uh, like a hen chicken is seems almost derogatory, but he has deigned to come down to our level that we can understand the desire of the hen chicken to protect the little chicks. So he is willing to protect us, like the mother hen, who protects the chicks from the wind and the rain. But not only is he willing, but he is also able, because we see him also as this one who is, his faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. We are protected by the armor if you will of the soldier who is ready to go into battle and so he is certainly not only willing as the hen chicken but he is able as the soldier well in your outline here notice in verse 2 this is very personal he speaks in personal terms he moves from stating his theme, that is the psalmist, in verse 1, to breaking into personal testimony with the eyes and my's throughout this. He is the good shepherd, but even more importantly, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that's the idea of the drawing nigh to, to the Lord there. In Mark chapter 2, and you're outlined here, See how the Lord rebuked the Pharisees defending the disciples. His faithfulness becomes their shield and rampart. And we see the example there. There they are, gleaning in the fields, walking along behind the Lord, and they're picking some grain and eating because it's, they're hungry. And it's the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are pointing to them and saying, See, they're working on the Sabbath. They're doing physical labor on the Sabbath as they're picking the grain. And, and the Lord immediately comes to their rescue and their protection. Because he says to them, you know, did not David, uh, in your, you know, your King David, as you look, look at him, he, he ate of the showbread, which was only for the priests. And he gave it to his, his, uh, uh, the company that was with him. And he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They weren't working on the Sabbath. They weren't doing labor for economic gain which was what the sabbath law was all about it was those 600 laws that were added to god's law by the pharisees that would oppress the people and and here you see the lord protecting his own and he says and by the way i am lord over the sabbath he tells them and he comes as a protector then to the disciples so not only are you given as a close dweller special care from heaven but you shall be delivered from the powers of darkness. And we see this in verses three, five and eight, five through eight. The fowler's snare speaks of the enemy's trap. When you think of a fowler's snare, you think of a noose laying on the ground and the, and the, the bird or the fowl is pecking along in the ground and, and eating the grain or eating the insects and he has no idea how close he is coming to the noose. He has no idea of the danger that is nearby. But God, who watches over us, knows exactly where the dangers are, and he protects them. He protects us from it. You see in 1 Timothy where Paul is warning Timothy and talking about the evil one and how the evil one sets a trap. And he mentions two different things which are interesting. One is pride is a trap of Satan. And he he says to Timothy, considering elders and deacons, that they should not be... Uh, recent converts because if they are a recent convert they may become prideful because of this and fall into the enemy's trap the devil's trap that would be like the fowler's snare he also warns uh, Timothy that uh, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction these are the enemy's trap it's like the fowler's snare and to be a close dweller which is what this psalm was all about. One avoids these kinds of circumstances. The evil one goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We see that. Yet God limits him. We see that in Job 1, where He limits the things that God can, that that uh, Satan can do. So He will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape. We see that in 1 Corinthians <coughs> chapter 10. So He protects us. He limits the evil one, and things that he can do. And he gives us his word to guide us uh, that we might walk aright each day if we are close dwellers, if we stay in his presence. Now, in your outline here, I have the deadly pestilence speaks of mortal disease that can come at any time. And we see in First Kings, we, Solomon dedicating the temple, and he's praying to God, and he says, when the deadly pestilence, deadly pestilence comes our way because your children are going astray and they turn back to their ways and pray to the Lord and repent of their sins, then forgive us our sins. So often the deadly pestilence comes not from the hand of Satan, but from the hand of God to get us back on track where we belong because that is his desire for the close dwellers. And we see that also in Deuteronomy 28, the causes for disobe- curses for disobedience is found there. Yet he saves you. You see in, C- in Christ, in John chapter 17, you notice I keep going back to John because I love the book of John. And you see in John 17 where he's in the high priestly prayer. And he's, he's basically saying in the high priestly prayer to the Father, I have protected all those that you have given me all the time that they have been with me. But Father I'm going to the cross and the grave so Father you protect them. He said you gave them to me they were yours and you gave them to me so Father protect them. Sanctify them by thy word, thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so he doesn't want them taken out of the world, he wants them protected while they're in the world and he's he's turning that over to the Father as he goes to the cross. So you see that constant protection from all the insults of the evil one. Now in verses 5 and 6, it says something interesting here. It says, You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. There's a number of things that that are going on here. One is that these are four different times of the day. The Hebrews sort of separated the day into into six-hour segments. And... Uh, And you're seeing four different times of the day here in these two verses. There's also two different kinds of, of evil, if you will call. There's mortal disease, pestilence, and plague. There's the arrow and the terror that really comes from an enemy. And he's saying in all kinds of trials and all kinds of troubles, in any kind of time of the day or night, the Lord protects you if you are a close dweller. That's the idea of this. Well, I have in your outline, how would you really like to live life without fear? This is a real promise. No anti-anxiety meds needed for real or imagined fear because you are in the shadow of the Most High. What a blessing that we can have. Consider the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. You, you all know that story. There they are before the king who's built this 90-foot-high idol, and they're all supposed to bow down to it whenever the, the, the musicians play the different instruments, and they're not going to do it. And so he brings them, and he says, all you have to do is bow down. You can can have your own gods just also bow down to this God that I've created. And they say, we don't have to defend ourselves in this matter. He said, you can go ahead and throw us into the fiery furnace if that's your decision because we're not going to go ahead and bow down because God, there is only one God, the true God, the God of Israel, and that's that's who we're going to worship. So do whatever you have to do. But we know this, our God is able to, to deliver us from the fiery furnace, if he cho- so chooses. They didn't say, we know this, our God is going to deliver us. They just had confidence and no fear because they knew their God was able. And so they trusted whatever his decision would be regarding what was going to happen to them because they didn't bow down and they knew that was absolutely wrong, that whatever his decision would be, that would be right. If they were thrown in the fiery furnace and they burned up, then that was the decision that God wanted for them, and they would be a martyr dying in, uh, to glorify him. And if he so choose, he could deliver them from the fiery furnace. And you know the story. He, the, the king got all upset, got that fiery furnace seven times more, more temperature, and the men that actually threw them into the fiery furnace, they died just because of the heat was so much, and now Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, I thought we put three in there. And there's, there's a fourth one walking around in there. And it was the pre-incarnate Christ that he saw in there. And then he honored the God of Israel when he called them back out forth from the fiery furnace. Well, real or imagined fear, how would you like to live life without fear? That's the way they had. They weren't afraid of what was going to happen because they knew their God was able to deliver them. And they were obviously close dwellers so day or night, real arrows, real terror, terror, yet no fear. A real furnace with real flames, yet no fear. Why? Because he is able. The Lord said, no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. It makes you think of Paul who says, O death, where is your sting? O, o grave, where is your victory? There's no fear about death. In fact, in Hebrews, it says, Since the children of God have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. How would you like to have no fear of death? There's only one way to have no fear of death, and that is to know Christ. That is to be a close dweller. And then you need not fear death. And that's what he's saying here. You will not fear the terror. Well, he understands our fears. Philippians 2, 7, and 8 says he became one of us. He took upon himself the very nature of a servant. So he knows our fears, and he meets us there. Look at the sweet, one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. It's found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, describing Christ in all his glory To me, it's one of the most blessed sections of Scripture. There in the book of the Revelation, you have John. He's imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. He has this experience where he is taken up in the Spirit, and he, he is in the presence of the glorified Christ. And he hears the voice that sounds like a trumpet, and he turns to now see the glorified Christ and describe him And the pastor talks about how he stretches the words, trying to make words identify with what he is seeing. And I'll just read it to you. It's just so powerful because it's, it's such a blessing. If you don't get anything else out from this message, get this, because I really think it's an example of what each one of us will go through shortly after we die. He looks and he sees... And he tries to describe this, and he says, I saw, seven, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And this is the Lord of glory now. This is the one who said in the upper room, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that I had with you before the world began. This is the Lord of glory now in his glorified state. He's no longer the suffering servant. And he tries to describe him with words, and he says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. He's describing the purity of this one of the Lord of Glory, and his eyes were like blazing fire. He can see right into your heart, and he says his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. They're pure, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It's like Niagara Falls and the power that comes from his voice. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, it says the word of God is. He's trying to describe this Lord of glory that he sees. And he says, and out of his mouth, he says his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You remember when you were a little boy and your mom told you don't look at the sun because it's going to burn your eyes. And he's looking and he's describing this isn't an eclipse sun. This is the sun in all its brilliance. And he sees him. And regardless of how he's stretching the words, trying to explain what he sees, let's see what he does when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead it's like uh, it reminds you of isaiah 6 when he's when isaiah sees the glory of god and he says woe is me cursed is me for i am undone for i my lips uh, my lips are sinful he said i live among the people with with unclean lips and my lips are unclean and my eyes have seen the glory of god it's It's that imagery, and I think that's what we're going to all experience when we are in the presence of the glorified Christ. We're going to see, and why, why does he fall upon his face? I think it's because he sees his own inadequacy, his own sin, and there's no making excuses about, I did this and I did this and it wasn't my fault. You just look at yourself and you go, I am undone. And the beautiful part of this whole thing, the amazing part about this whole thing that's just so comforting because he is a close dweller, he says, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. If you don't get anything else from this message, imagine when you're in the presence of the glorified Christ. If you have been walking with him all your life, he knows our fears our fears are realistic when we see his holiness and his purity. And he puts his right hand upon us. And he says, Do not be afraid, for I am the living one. I was dead, and I am alive forevermore. I am the Alpha and Omega. He said, I am the beginning and the end, and I hold the keys of death death and the grave and when the lord of glory puts his hand on you and tells you you don't have to be afraid you do not have to be afraid about death and about life eternal because you're in his presence and he is the one that you can dwell in the shelter of and you can rest in the shadow of because he understands our fears. I have down here, it reminds me of Aslan the lion in the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Is he safe? Is he dangerous? And she's told, oh, yes, he's very dangerous. He's the most powerful animal in all of Narnia, but he is good. Well, the last two verses in this section of Psalm 91, A 1,000 may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will only come near you. It will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. And I referenced those in Egypt at the first Passover. And you remember the story of the first Passover where 10 plagues, and it was the last plague, and every time Pharaoh would say, yes, I'll let you go, and then he would, he would recant and he continued to imprison prison continue to, to hold as captive the nation of Israel. And finally, there came the final plague, and it was the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn male child or animal, and animal, and of all the families that lived in Egypt, except for all those that applied the blood to the doorpost and the mantle over the door, and they went inside because they had been with that lamb that was the substitute and it was a picture of Christ and when the, when the angel of the Lord, which was the pre-incarnate Christ, went through that camp that night, went through all of Egypt that night, the firstborn male child died except those that were behind those doors that had the blood applied because it was a picture of the future blood that would be applied to every believer who had received Christ as their Savior and his blood was applied to their life on the cross. And they woke up the next morning, those Israelites, and a thousand had died at one hand, and ten thousand had died to the right hand, and the Lord of glory had not touched them. The angel of the Lord had not touched them because they were under his protection all night long. And we think again of, of Joshua and Caleb in Numbers, and we remember the story he led them out of the promise to the promised land. He led them out of Egypt, and they came to the Red Sea. And God parted the Red Sea and swallowed up Pharaoh and all the armies of Pharaoh. They had nowhere to put Pharaoh. They had no body of Pharaoh to put in the Egyptian, um, um yeah, the the, uh, the tomb. Yeah, the the pyramids that they would build. They'd, as soon as a, a child was born that was uh, going to be an heir to to the throne. This God on earth, Pharaoh, well, they would start building the pyramids. They'd start building a, a, a place to bury them. They had, he was swallowed up in the Red Sea. His, young, his, his firstborn male child died, and now he died in the Red Sea. Talk about God saying, this is your God on earth. Here's the real God. Now you can't even find his body. you got a pyramid, you got nowhere to put him. You've got, you got no body to put in the pyramid. But here they went now for the next year and a half and they get to the promised land and they're ready to enter the promised land and they send spies into the promised land and you know the story. Ten came back and said, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. He's fed them every day. They've had the pillar of fire by night, the, the cloud by day. They've had the water from the rock. They have all this visual demonstration of the power of God. They get there and they go, there's, there's giants in the land. And Joshua and Caleb come out and they go, yeah, there's giants in the land. So what? Let's go take it. The Lord said, take it. And for the next, and, and, and because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, they wandered for the next 38 and a half years. And Joshua and Caleb watched everyone 21 years and older die, a thousand at their hand, 10,000 at their right hand. Yet, yet they were protected. And ultimately, they were the only two of that age, of that generation, that entered the Promised Land. So it's a picture of, it's not just. Satan, but sometimes it is God bringing judgment upon those that have strayed. We'll go to the flip side of the sheet that I gave, that I handed out, but they, I guess they got a little different sheet here. This is probably a different way layout. But we're on to verse 9, and it says, if you make the most high your dwelling. Well, in order for these promises to be yours personally, they have to be because you've made the most high your dwelling even the Lord who is my refuge then no harm will befall you if this is going to be applied to your life these promises if no harm no disaster will come your way if you will be the charge of the holy angels and that's your blank in the outline there it is because you are making the most high your dwelling no surprise here you might say well Paul was beaten he was shipwrecked he was ultimately killed because of his faith Listen to what Matthew Henry says regarding this Though trouble or affliction come your way, yet there shall be no evil in it. For it shall come from the love of God and the hand of God, and shall be sanctified. It shall come not for thy hurt, but for thy good. And though for the present it be not joyous, but grievous, yet in the end it shall yield so well, thou thyself shall say, no evil befell thee. Hebrews says, Discipline though for the present, It be not joyous, but grievous. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's like Romans 8, for all things work together for the good to them that love God. In the actual going through the trials, we would not have joy in the trial, but remember the close dwellers never go through the trials alone because he goes through the valley of the shadow of death with you. Thou art with me. Therefore, you're never alone in that trial i have in your outline therefore you will not die before your time remember this is for the close dwellers the protection and victory is not automatic for all believers we are not to wander off we know in first corinthians eleven thirty that is why many among you are weak and sickly and some sleep why because they had strayed there was a premature death brought about to some of the individuals in the in the church in Corinth, and Paul was saying, that's why some are sickly among you, and some sleep, they were wandering off, they were going and taking communion, and they shouldn't have been, because they had unresolved, unconfessed, recognized sin in their lives, and it was just like, well, that doesn't matter, I'm going to take communion anyway, and God, re- he, he punished them, that's why it says in 1 John 5, 16, there is a sin unto death, I do not say you should pray for this, there is, there is situations where believers have premature death. God is calling them home to himself because they are done serving him in this life. Their life is going to end sooner than later because they are no longer a testimony for God. This these promises are for the close dwellers. This message is not a name it and claim it. It's not a a, a health and wealth type of message. It's one that tells us we need to stay close to our Savior well notice the angel and I have in parentheses s the angels watch over the close dwellers Hebrews 1 14 says are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation they that is the close dwellers walk in his ways and he keeps them in all theirs. how the angels do this we may never know resisting the demons of the evil one repelling disease maybe one day we will know but angels are plural, not just one guardian angel, but many or all. Remember the story of Elisha, the prophet, in 2 Kings chapter 6. And we could spend a while just thinking about that. But he was there, and it was the, the king of Aram, and he was plotting to capture or defeat the Israelite army. And every time they set an ambush, they already knew about it. And the Israelite army was ready for him. And he said, somebody must be spying in our group. And he gets all his generals together and says, who's spying? And they say, well, nobody's spying. It's, it's, there's, they have this prophet, Elijah, over there. And every time you make a decision of how we're supposed to attack or ambush them in the privacy of your bedroom, he already knows about it. And he's telling the Israelite army what to do. And so they're always prepared. And so he said, well, then we've got to, we've got to kill him. We've got to get Elijah. And so... He says, Where is he living? He says, He's in dotham And so they surround the whole city of dotham And the morning, they wake up, and Elijah and his servant wake up, and the servant looks out, and they're surrounded. The whole city's surrounded. And you know the story. There's thousands, I guess, of the army against them. And he basically tells Elijah, We're toast. <laughs> and Elijah looks out, and he says, Well, there's more of us than there are of them. Don't worry. And you can just see this poor servant, he's, he's going 1, 2, and he's going 1,000, 2,000, and he tries again, and he says, I'm not getting this, and so Elijah prays that God would open his eyes, and he opens his eyes, and he sees the encampment of the armies of the Lord around the armies of the king of Dothan, and, or the king of uh, Aram, and, um, and there were more of us than there are of them, because there they were, their chariots of fire, and you know the story, they went to attack. Elijah prays, they all go blind. And now he leads them into the campment of the Israelites. And when their eyes are open, they're surrounded by the uh, Israelite army. And the Israelite commander said, do you want us to kill them? And he says, no, just feed them. And send them on their way. So they feed them. And they go back. And they never attacked again because they knew they were dealing with the God of Israel. And the God of Israel was not to be messed with. <laughs> and so... The, the angels are plural. So I have in your outline, I believe I know of several times the angels of God were watching over me. And I, I'll just share two little quick stories. Uh, I'm sure there are many times that the angels watch over us. The first time, my family's all here. They know about the time when I was four years old and we were, we were running late for church. And you heard a little bit about it. Actually, Pastor mentioned this last uh, week. Uh, we were going to the Church of God in McClay Street, Harrisburg, we were going across the Harvey Taylor Bridge, we were, I was four years old, I was dressed up in my little, uh, you know, I think it was really like the the winter jumpsuit that where you look like you're in a sleeping bag with your head just sticking out and a little kid, and, uh, and I was hot, and as I remember this story, uh, I, I wanted to roll down the window because I was hot, but my mom says I wanted to throw a piece of gum out the window or something like that, so I don't know, but At any rate, I do know this. Um, My mom says that she's so old, when she was born, the Dead Sea wasn't even sick yet. (laughs) Well, I'm so old, when I was born, they didn't have seat belts back in those days. And you all probably remember, many of you probably remember that. And I went to roll down the the window and I grabbed the wrong handle and out I went, 45 to 50 miles an hour on the Harvey Taylor Bridge. And I rolled like a ball. (laughs) by the time my dad got the car stopped and got the emergency on and turned I was coming butt up you know how little kids the butt comes up first and then they stand up and I was like how did I get here and my dad grabbed me threw me into my mom's arms who was wailing at that point and I thought it must be appropriate to cry then so I did (laughs) and and uh and off we went to the hospital I still remember a nurse saying you bumped your head there little boy and I think I got a little band-aid on my head And that was it and I'm certain that angels were watching over us that day because there was no car behind me to run over me and I didn't get caught under the back tire of the car and I, I could have certainly not been here today as a result of that. And whether somebody got hung up at a red light or somebody got uh, t- tangled up in traffic somewhere else or they were running later than they should have been for some reason or another, there was no one behind us to run me over that day. And I'm sure angels were watching over me. The second time, and I'll share with you, was a time where I was, again, close to that same location. But now I'm down on the river, under the bridge. And it's the South Bridge, not the Harvey Taylor Bridge, but close to the same area. And, and I had uh, always grown up a river rat and wanted to be on the river all the time. And so when I was um, early in my career as a dentist, I took my... Um, dental assistant's husband, first time ever on the river with me, with him, and uh, we got in my little 12-foot aluminum flat-bottom boat, weighs 85 pounds, one person can pick it up, it's tippy, keep that in mind, and, uh, and we had a little four-horse kicker and we went on the river and we went up to the South Bridge, which is just below the Dock Street Dam, and it was high water, it was a spring, and high water causes an effect at the Dock Street Dam, uh, it's called a low head dam, and it gets um, a uh, undertow about 25 feet off the dam. And so we were underneath the south bridge. We were in a good position. He dropped the anchor. We were getting a mini bucket on the side of the boat. There had been one other boat on the river that we noticed when we went up. And they passed us with three men. It was a V-bottom boat. It was a bigger boat. And that was didn't really pay any attention to them. But when we got situated just about the time that we got, got ready to get started to fish, I heard something, and so did Harry, that I'll never forget, and it was the scream of a man who was fighting for his life. I never heard anything like this. I'll never forget it. He was screaming help at the top of his lungs, and when we looked up, the boat that had passed us earlier was now capsized underneath the, south, underneath the, the dock street dam, and it was rolling doing somersaults. Two men were clamoring on that, trying to hold on to the side of it, and the third man was off to the left side of it, and he was in the undertow, and he was being driven to the bottom of the river, underneath the falls, and he would come up about 15 feet in front of the falls, and struggling as hard as he could, and swimming as hard as he could, he could not resist the power of that Dock Street Dam, pulling him back into it, and he would be driven again to the bottom. And when he was struggling and, and screaming, that's what we heard. We, I said to Harry, pull up the motor, or pull up the anchor and untie the anchor, so we have a rope, and I started my little motor, and we headed right to the Dock Street Dam to try to help this guy and we would go into the undertow, throw the, he would throw the rope, Harry would throw the rope from the front of the boat, to try to capture, to catch this guy so he could reach for it. He'd miss it, and I don't have a reverse on that little four-horse kicker. You just have to 180 it and get back out of there because you're already in the undertow, the little 12-foot boat, to get out. And Each time we would do that, Harry would pull the rope back in, we'd reset, he'd pop back up after about 30 seconds underwater, and we'd try again. The third time we tried to do that, we missed again, but this time when I spun the boat around, the rope went underneath the boat and it caught the motor that was was getting us out of there, and it just wound right up in the blade and came to a full stop. And whatever adrenaline was not already going through my veins at that point, the rest was dumped at that point because I jumped for the oars, I pulled three times on the oars, the third time I pulled on the oars, the minute bucket that was tied to the oar lock trapped, hit the oar and it just popped the oar right out of my hand and it just launched. And now we were about five feet from the dam and I had one oar. And we were going into the dam. And I stood up and I reached out and I put my oar against the dam to try to keep the water from going in the boat. And the boat pivoted around my oar, and Harry stood up and did the only thing he could do, and he stuck his leg out and put it up against that dam to try to keep the water from going in the boat. If I were to tell you that that next day, there was an article in the paper, and it said a man died on the Susquehanna River drowned at the Dock Street Dam, you would be able to say, I think I know it's one of these people. But we all got out of there alive. And it was later on that evening, a canoe went over the Dock Street Dam with a man or woman in it, and the man died. And that was the article in the paper. I have an article here called Killer Dams. It's, It's written in 2011. It talks about lots of different dams. On the first page of the article, It says, Dock Street Dam, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, site of 17 drownings within a 20-year period. Almost every year, the Dock Street Dam takes someone down. 20 years, 17 people died there. So you want to hear the end of the story? (laughs) Did I make it? Yeah, did I make it? Yes. Uh, What happened, I was leaning out, and for the fellow that had been going cycling, he came up and he grabbed the side of the boat, the opposite side that we were leaning from, which helped to counterbalance us a little bit. And one of the other two men had pushed free from the boat and he was in the same circumstance now and he also grabbed on. So there were two of them that were doing the cycle by that point. And for them, there was a boat right there between them and the dam, so they grabbed on, which (laughs) counterbalanced us. So now we're leaning, the falls are right there, And and I really believe at that point angels were watching over me and, and, and over us because there's no way that I think I should be here today except that they were watching over us. Because the strangest thing happened that I can't explain. I was a physics major in college. I've studied hydraulics, and I don't understand how this happened except the Lord was watching over us. You ever get to a stop sign, a red light, and you're sitting there kind of not paying attention, and out of the corner of your eyes the car moves next to you and you feel like you're moving so you hit your brake harder because you think you're moving well I had the sense that the Dock Street dam was moving upstream and if I was gonna continue to keep my oar against it I was gonna fall in the river And so I had to stand up and Harry had the same experience and he stood up and now we're looking at each other and we're getting further away from the dam and the next thing we're 20 feet and 30 feet away from the dam and we're going downstream these guys are hanging on to the side of the boat. Uh, the one gentleman said, I can't hold on any longer, and I had to trap his arms over the side just because he was exhausted. And he ended up spending the night in the hospital that night because he had water in his lungs and, and uh, in his stomach. And I untangled the rope and got the motor started, and, and the third gentleman had pushed off his boat that was rolling, and he managed to get free, and we picked him up. And all three of us made it to the top island there that's below the south bridge and about 20 minutes later the river rescue got there and it would have been too late because that that gentleman was almost gone back to the message here I didn't mean to get too far off base but I do believe there are times when angels of God are watching over us that we do not know it and one day I think when we're in glory we may know about it think of the angels for a second Uh, the angels of God and Adam were on the same plane when they were in the garden before Adam fell. But then Adam fell, and there was a great gulf between the holy angels of God and Adam. And yet, it talks about the fact that Christ has reconciled not only the Jew and the Gentile through the cross, but he has reconciled all things in heaven, and that would be angels, and on earth, that is us, together, under one head, even Christ. And you think about in Revelation chapter 19 when the angel is talking to John and John wants to worship the angel and he says, Don't worship me for I am a fellow servant. Worship God only. There you are back on the same plane with the holy angels and the only reason that John is on the same plane as this angel that says I'm a fellow servant is because he is a close dweller. He is one who is redeemed by the blood and all the angel sees is what god sees for us if we know him if we know christ that is he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of god in him he sees john as righteous not because john is by himself righteous certainly not but because he has the imputed righteousness of christ applied to his life because he has believed in the lamb of god And the greatest trade that could ever have occurred in the history of mankind is the trade where we trade our sin for his righteousness when he died on the cross for us, when we believe and receive that by faith. And that's what the angel saw when he said, don't worship me, I'm a fellow servant. Well, angels are actively involved in our lives, commissioned by God himself, and we see that where it is said he will command his angels concerning you their actions are marked sometimes by large and in this case small interventions he will not allow you to even strike your foot against a rock they are witnesses of the love of God for his own where he spared not his own son on their behalf and are diligent to carry out his charge it is not just for anyone it is for the close dwellers remember when Satan tried to tempt Christ and misquoted this verse I'll read it if you're reading your Bible verse 11 and 12 say for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways they will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against the rock the way Satan said it is he will command his angels concerning you they will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a rock he left out to guard you in all your ways he misquoted this verse to Christ who did not um, get captured or tripped up by the misquote and the reason he misquoted, because to guard you in all your ways points directly back to verse 9, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord, then no harm will befall you. There's an if-then relationship. And to guard you in all your ways are when your ways are his ways because you're dwelling in his shadow. And there's a difference. If he would have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple so everybody would have worshipped him, he would not been God's way. It would not, and so he says, you do not tempt the Lord thy God and so he did not go that way you want to know someone who went his own way and God didn't send the angels to keep him from striking his foot against the rock look at the story of Jonah there he's going his own way a very different way than God sent him God sent him to Nineveh he hated those Ninevites he didn't want to go to Nineveh he wanted to go to Tarshish he wanted to go the other way and God didn't send angels to protect him in all his ways in fact he sent a great storm and he was going to teach Jonah obedience. And Jonah ultimately went God's way, didn't he? For a, with a, a very different fashion than he was planning. He went by way of a great fish that was prepared for him. Three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And if you think that's a fish story, <laughs> remember the fact that Christ quoted this, talked about this very event. They wanted a sign. He said, I'll give you one sign to prove that I'm the Messiah, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the grave, and then he will rise. And those disciples remembered that, and when they saw the risen Lord, who they doubted, even doubting Thomas, I have to touch him, I have to see him for myself, once they were convinced of that sign, they never turned back in their faith or their commitment. well they shall ultimately in your in your uh, section here we're going to go into number 4 here they shall triumph over their enemies now the lion is a powerful enemy the serpent is a cunning enemy and both are referenced here he will trample the great lion and the serpent it says you will tread upon the lion and the cobra four animals four beasts the lion the cobra the great lion and the serpent and we're talking about the fact of power and of cunning now i want you to think of john chapter 18 And the event is right at the Garden of Gethsemane. And here comes a detachment of soldiers to get Christ. They have been commissioned by, um, probably by Pontius Pilate. And there is the temple guard. There is this detachment of soldiers. There are the priests. And there is Judas. And there are, on the other side, that is the Lord and 11 disciples. Now, Henderson in his commentary says a detachment of soldiers is probably one-tenth of a legion. Does that help us all? <laughs> a legion is about 6,000, they say, and a detachment would be about 600. Consider yourself as a soldier now, and you're in the, in the um, uh, whatever the barracks are there, and you get a, a a message and you're supposed to go get this one Jesus of Nazareth and so you put on your armor and you get your shield and you get your sword and your, and your breastplate and there's 600 of you now. And you're coming to this little troop standing outside of the Garden of Gethsemane to take them and amongst the whole leaven and one, there's maybe one sword. Remember Peter has a sword, a little thing he cuts off Malchus ear. Um, this is going to be nothing. This is going to be a piece of cake. Jesus steps out and he says, who is it that you want? He makes them look at their orders. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. We're here to get Jesus of Nazareth. And he says something now next in this event that you all know about that's pretty profound. He says, I am. He says the words that Moses heard from the burning bush when he wanted to know who he's supposed to say to to the nation of Israel sent him. Tell them, I am sent you. And you might remember what happened to the 600, 600 soldiers? They all fell to the ground. So there you are, you're all in your, all your armament, and you're going to get this. And all of a sudden, he says, I am, and you're laying on the ground now. And you're looking around, and all 600 of you are laying on the ground with your, all your armor and all your armaments and everything. A powerful foe is nothing to the Lord of glory. And that's the idea. He will... He will, you can tread upon the lion and the cobra, the great lion and the serpent. The power is there. And notice he also protects his disciples. They get back up. He says again, um, who is it you're looking for? The Jesus of Nazareth. It doesn't say anything about the 11 disciples. So let them go. You're the on, I'm the only one you're looking for. And he fulfills that promise that he said there, even in the, in the upper room when he was praying to the Father, I have protected them. All those that you gave me, I protected them. And there he is protecting them. The close dwellers are being protected. They could have all gone to the cross that day. They could have all been beaten that day. Instead, they all get sent away because these guys are brushing themselves off and going like, yeah, our orders just say to get him. We'll just take him. That's it. You know, and, and he's coming willingly, so let's just move on with this. So the, so the cunning... I have, the, remember the cunning questions of the Pharisees in Luke 20. Jesus says, tell me the answer to this question, and I will answer thee, and they dared not. He said, neither will I tell you. The cunning are no match to the God-man. He said, whose baptism is John's baptism? And they, they decide, well, if we say one thing, we can't do that, They're, people are going to stone us. If we say the other thing, he's going to say, well, then why don't you listen to him if it's from God? So finally, they, are the, they shall be the special favorites of God himself. And here we see in verses 14 to 16, God speaks. The deliverer of the close dweller is not just the angels, but God himself. I will, he says over and over again. It's like Peter in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 16 in prison. He's chained between two soldiers. He's set free by an angel of the Lord now knocking at the door of the fearful praying Christians. And they were astonished. Remember, they didn't even open the door. She looked out and she just turned around and said, Peter's here, Peter's here. And he's still standing there knocking. Delivered, rescued, see the same Peter honored. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Why was he honored? Because he loves me Remember he said three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Kind of in balance to the fact that he had denied him three times. And Peter said, Lord, you know, thou knowest. This Peter is delivered, rescued, honored because he knows my name. And the question is, do you know his name? We call upon his name, his name protects, his name saves, we trust in his name, we rejoice in his name. We can cry out, Abba, Father, because we know our Father. Do you know his name? To know right is life eternal. There is only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you know that name? Well, finally, to call out and to be answered by God, it says, He will call upon me and I will answer him. The close dwellers, Paul in prison of Philippi, singing, now released. In Acts 16 25, see the I will of verse 15, right with him in times of trouble. Not that we never have trouble, but he is with us in times of trouble. If Jesus is with you, you are very safe. The same Jesus who met Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He never said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? He said, why are you persecuting me? Notice how Jesus took Saul's actions very personally. Now he is with him in prison, delivered, honored by the jailer and his family, privileged to lead them to Christ. Because Paul was a close dweller to call out in prayer is prayer. God does not promise us a life of ease and luxury, but deliverance from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. To pray properly is to be grounded in God's word. Well, finally with long life we are satisfied. There's real security, real peace, no fear through this life, no premature death. Life on the earth it is to our satisfaction, protected from premature untimely death trusting in him who has reserved to himself and to his own wisdom the times and the seasons of our lives paul says there's no need to remain he would prefer to be absent from the body and be present with the lord first corinthians 5 8 so today we what we know is in part we see through a glass darkly but then face to face whether we live 20 years or a hundred years this life is but a vapor anyway one day we, we shall fully see the salvation that we have been provided. As Pastor says, the best is yet to come. John seventeen twenty four. he said, I want those that you have given me, Lord, to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that I had with you before the world began. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That is the close dwellers. Well, finally, lessons for our lives. Security is found only in the Lord. The Lord is our hiding place. He is our secret place, the place that we can be and should walk in His shadow every day. Resist the temptation to be formal, professional, while our hearts are far from the Lord. Guard your heart. Live close to the Lord. If you do, you will be indestructible in His will. There will never be premature death. Don't be confused thinking your business, your strength, your pension will protect you. It is only in the presence of the Lord that will protect you. And we can rest in the Lord. Our security is in him. Jesus is our Sabbath, our resting place. These five promises are for the close dwellers. To know these promises is to know him. So the question is, are you saved? Do you know him whom to know aright is life eternal? Well, God's word, Psalm 91. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the protection that you give us every day. We read in Romans 8 how... You sit, dear Lord, at the right hand of the Father and you make intercession for us daily. We read in the same, in the same book, in the same chapter, how the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and intercedes and, and interprets them for us. And we read, how can anything separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus? And you go through this whole litany of all the possible things that could possibly separate us and we find there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Help us to remember that every day of our lives and to live each day as a close dweller, dwelling in the shelter of the Most High and in the shadow of the Almighty. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.